Wednesday, June 5th. The phone jarred me awake from a deep sleep. It was Lyndon saying briefly, tersely, will you come in here? I resentfully did not see how it could be morning. And sure enough, I saw with amazement that the hands of clock said 4.20. Nothing good can come from a phone call at 4 a.m. Ladybird goes over to Lyndon's bedroom, her anxiety rising. He was propped up against the pillows in his room, looking as though he had never been to sleep. And all the TV sets were on. And I realized at once something was happening. Ladies and gentlemen, we've kept the air on because we've heard an alarming report that Robert Kennedy was shot in that ballroom at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. A very loud noise like a clap of thunder was heard. A small I'm not sure whether I heard it first from the TV set or from London. Senator, Senator Kennedy, Kennedy had been shot. shot. We will bring you more news as we learn it. So far, that's all the information we have. From Best Case Studios and ABC Audio, this is In Plain Sight. I'm Julia Swig. Episode 8, Claudia All My Life. You have seen some Lyndon and Ladybird have both had a fraught relationship with Bobby Kennedy. It dates back to 1960, when Bobby was openly opposed to his brother Jack putting LBJ on the ticket. They've been through extraordinary times together, great things and terrible things. Jack's victory in the election, his assassination in Dallas, the passing of major civil rights laws, the murder of Martin Luther King just two months ago. They've been uneasy allies, but mostly adversaries. None of it matters anymore. The whole thing had taken place under the eye of the television camera. And we saw over and over film of the shooting itself and heard the light crack guns. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? It is possible. He has. Not only Senator Kennedy. Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Get the gun, Raper. Okay, no, hold on to the guy. Hold on to him. Hold him. Hold him. We don't want another Oswald. Keep people away from him. Keep people away from him. We saw him lying on the floor in a pool of blood under his head. There was an air of unreality about the whole thing, a nightmare quality. It couldn't be. You dreamed it. It had happened before. It had happened before. JFK, then Dr. King. Now this. Three assassinations in just a few years. And every few moments, there would come on the screen, smiling face of Senator Kennedy, tasting the wine of victory, making little jokes with Ethel by his side, and then we would go through the whole thing over again. The age of television has its downside. Lyndon asked me to get some coffee. I went into the kitchen, not knowing where coffee or coffee pot was, and searched until I found some instant sanka and put the kettle on, and got out tea and cream and sugar, and presently took a tray back. 
the three faces of the television kept repeating the hideous story. We're still not clear on what happened. Senator was going in for brain surgery. Was fired, it had been determined that the bullet had lodged somewhere behind the ear. There have been reports that operations of this sort can take up to four hours, so this may still be a long vigil. We repeat at the time... Bobby hangs on for almost 26 hours. It all melts into a montage. Everybody with stricken faces. The air of unreality. This can't be happening. And underneath this deep, racking sob, my country, my country. Remembering Martin Luther King just two months ago today. And President Kennedy. The worst fears of the American public have been confirmed with the passing of Senator Robert Kennedy. Death came at 1.44 this morning, Pacific Daylight Time. Senator Robert Kennedy, whose brother, President John F. Kennedy, was murdered about five years ago, died early today at what must have been the zenith of his brilliant political career. Death from a massive brain injury inflicted by an assassin's bullet. In the days that follow, it's like time has stopped in the White House. Phone calls, meetings, waiting. There's a portrait of President Woodrow Wilson that used to hang in the grand staircase at the White House. It was painted after he had a stroke in 1919, one that left him incapacitated. In the back of her mind, Lady Bird has always worried that some similar fate might await LBJ. I know what I always say in front of the Wilson portrait. Its message to me is, the president should have his portrait painted reasonably early in the office. Time's running out for LBJ. He'd had his portrait painted in 1965, but neither of them liked the result, although it does hang in the National Portrait Gallery today. LBJ is scheduled to sit for a new portrait the day before Bobby's funeral. The timing is definitely not great, but they decide to keep the appointment. Maybe sitting still for an hour is exactly what they need. The artist is Madame Elizabeth Shumatov, a Russian emigre. She was in Warm Springs, Georgia with Franklin Roosevelt doing an initial sketch for his portrait when he died from a cerebral hemorrhage in April 1945. Now, with the specter of death hanging over the White House, the President, the First Lady, and Madame Shumatov gather in the Lincoln sitting room. Lyndon reads aloud from letters from his son-in-law, Chuck, in Vietnam. White House photographer Yoichi Okamoto shoots a few candidates. In a few of the images, you see Lady Bird sitting by the window, watching. She's not the artist or the subject. She's the one orchestrating this moment, fixing it in history. Saturday, June 8th, was a day for me completely detached from the normal, capsule of time suspended in unreality, burial of Senator Bobby Kennedy. We were up early and read the papers, which were drenched with every aspect of the story. The Johnsons fly up to New York for the funeral. The service is held in St. Patrick's Cathedral in Midtown Manhattan. New York was a strange sight. The streets were lined with people who stood silent, motionless. For three days, the television had been invoking the phrase, like a Greek tragedy. And indeed, there was much of a Greek play about this. These crowds, the voiceless chorus. In New York, ABC News commentator Frank Reynolds. Good morning. One hour from now, a solemn requiem mass will be said 
For Senator Robert Francis Kennedy, 42 years old, like his brother, the victim of an assassin's bullet. All during the night, until shortly before 5 o'clock this morning, the people of New York, and for that matter, people from all over the country, some from all over the world, filed past the casket of Senator Robert Kennedy. Police estimated that some 140,000 persons had slowly walked past the casket. Now the presidential limousine, the Secret Service car behind it, and on the fenders. And here it is. Now the First Lady, in black, white trim of the collar. President in a gray suit. Not an uproarious, but a small cheer from the crowd as Mr. Johnson and his ladies start into the church. We were escorted in St. Patrick's, that magnificent setting equal to any sorrow or any joy. Pierre Salinger, JFK's former press secretary, escorts the Johnsons to their seats. He looked absolutely stricken. As we approached the dark, shiny coffin covered with a flag, tall candles at each side. Lyndon paused briefly, and so did I, and then turned to the left and took the seats that were shown to us in the front row. The enormous Neo-Gothic Cathedral is packed with 4,000 mourners, artists, intellectuals, journalists, labor leaders like Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, civil rights leader John Lewis, cabinet secretaries and dozens of members of Congress, candidates running for president from both parties, though not George Wallace. I had noticed just as we moved into our seat that the congregation silently and without signal had risen. It was Mrs. Jacqueline Kennedy in black and veiled with her two children entering. Jackie had almost fainted when she entered the cathedral. She passed in front of us and sat in the front row seat on the right-hand side with all the numerous Kennedy family. Somehow it seemed Ethel and her children slipped in more quietly. The celebrated conductor Leonard Bernstein, a friend of Bobby and Ethel's, conducts Mahler's Adagietto. It was a ceremony of staggering drama and beauty. I can see only the back of the director, which was in itself a study, an expression of the utmost to passion, torment, and talent, a magnificent little piece in this whole mosaic. Always you were aware of the flag-draped coffin in the middle of the aisle with its incredible burden. This has been the most shocking, the most unbelievable event in the nation's life as I have shared it, heightened, made all the more so, by President Kennedy's assassination nearly five years ago. On behalf of Mrs. Kennedy, her children... Bobby's last surviving brother, Senator Ted Kennedy, gives the eulogy. I want to express what we feel to those who mourn with us today in this cathedral and around the world. He was strong and composed. Though his eyes were red-rimmed, and partway through, his voice began to quaver. Pray that what he was to us then came under control come to pass and ended calmly. He asked that his brother be remembered simply as a good and decent man who saw wrong and tried to write it, saw suffering and tried to heal it, saw war and tried to stop it. In many parts of this nation, 
to those he touched and who sought to touch him. Some men see things as they are and say why. I dream things that never were and say why not. As the Johnsons make their way out of the cathedral, they stop to greet Teddy, then Ethel and her children, and Bobby's mother, Rose. And then I found myself in front of Mrs. Jacqueline Kennedy. I called her name and put out my hand. I hardly knew how to describe the next few moments of time. She looked at me as though from a great distance, as though I were an apparition. Jackie and Lady Bird have lived through so much together, so much tragedy. Maybe, finally, too much for Jackie to summon that generosity she had shown to Ladybird almost five years ago, after Dallas. I felt extreme hostility. Was it because I was alive? Lyndon and Ladybird are back at the White House by 1 p.m. They wait for the train carrying RFK from New York. The train travels slowly. There are crowds lining the tracks for almost the whole way. Some salute. Some place their hands over their hearts. It takes eight hours to arrive at Union Station in Washington. If this were an actual campaign train, Senator Kennedy would be on the platform of the last car. The day feels endless. Somber visitors at the White House, nonstop television coverage. Today, that's where his casket rests, on a one-foot-high platform covered in red velvet. His family and closest friends in the adjoining three cars. It's almost 10 o'clock at night when the funeral procession finally begins the journey to Arlington National Cemetery. The president's limousine follows, 14 cars behind the hearse. On the way, the cortege stops at the Lincoln Memorial, overlooking the National Mall. Since late May, the mall has been the site of a kind of large-scale protest called Resurrection City, a 15-acre encampment, over 500 makeshift dwellings, health clinics, and community buildings. It's home to thousands of people from all around the country. The Reverend Jesse Jackson is the, quote, city manager. Resurrection City had been built in the weeks following Martin Luther King's death, the legacy of his Poor People's Campaign. The National Park Service had even given the encampment its own zip code, 20013. Celebrities like Sidney Poitier, Marlon Brando, and Barbara Streisand have visited to lend their support. It's a highly visible rebuke to LBJ's Great Society and the idea that Lady Bird's beloved beautification campaign can offer any kind of meaningful improvement to people's lives. As the procession passes, the crowd is singing Battle Hymn of the Republic, written by abolitionist Julia Ward Howe in 1861 at the start of the Civil War. The Secret Service tells Lady Bird she should not lower her window to listen. Lining the route to Arlington, there are crowds at times six people deep, holding candles in silent vigil, many who have waited all day for Bobby's funeral procession to pass. It was a great white moon riding high in the sky, a beautiful night. This is the only night funeral I ever remember. An incredible, unbelievable, cruel, and wrenching time. Eleven days later, 
a hundred thousand people gather at Resurrection City for a rally. It's June 19th, also known as Juneteenth, the day celebrating the emancipation from slavery. Actor Ozzie Davis is master of ceremonies. Bill Cosby performs. Mahalia Jackson and Pete Seeger sing, and Eartha Kitt addresses the crowd in both English and Spanish. Coretta Scott King is there. This place holds special meaning for her. I stand here today with many mixed emotions, for it was five years ago that my late husband, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., stood in this very spot and told the nation about his dream. A hushed crowd listens as Mrs. King reads a message. And now I should like to read to you a telegram which I received from another lady who was just recently victimized by the same tragedy which my family and I were victimized by. Today, on this most important day for all Americans, my heart and prayers are with you. The finest memorial to Dr. Martin Luther King would be the tangible action our country takes now to implement the programs he and my husband cared about so deeply. Signed, Mrs. Ethel Kennedy. Maybe the death of RFK has sapped the will of Washington and the country, or the hope that peaceful protest can bring real change. But the mainstream media had turned on Resurrection City, depicting it as a disaster. It had rained for 30 days straight. People in the encampment are sick, and they've messed up the grass on the National Mall. It takes all of 90 minutes for hundreds of policemen dressed in riot helmets and flak jackets and armed with shotguns and tear gas to dismantle the place. It's the day after Resurrection City is destroyed. On their way to the airport, Lady Bird and her policy aide, Sharon Francis, drive past the remains of the encampment. We passed the Resurrection City site, and she said she wished she could know what they were thinking and how they felt. She just wanted to have an empathy with them and didn't know them well enough, realized she didn't. Lady Bird is on her way to Portland, Oregon, to give a speech to the annual conference of the American Institute of Architects. It's a profession that's doing some soul-searching at the moment. Our architects, who've profited from massive urban renewal contracts, the hulking towers of inner-city housing projects, somehow complicit in the problems tearing American cities apart? Wednesday, June 26th. I had breakfast and read over my speech in the comfortable little room at the Sheraton Motor Inn, and then drove to the Civic Center where the American Institute of Architects was having its annual convention. With less than six months to go in the Johnson presidency, Lady Bird is ready to stop pulling any punches. She's introduced by Secretary of Agriculture Orville Freeman. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. As you may know, my concern has been expressed in an effort called beautification. 
I think you also know what lies beneath that rather inadequate word. If ever there's a time to move beyond flowers, the summer of 1968 is it. And Bird goes straight to the terrible legacy of urban renewal, the destructive effect of unfettered freeway construction. I earnestly hope that our civilization is remembered for more than its mammoth freeways and vast urban superblocks, for more than the isolated, impersonal, gigantic public housing projects of our cities. Too many of these great projects seem to me to be reproaches, not signs of progress. But like so many aspects of Lady Bird Johnson, the substance of what she's saying goes pretty much unnoticed. Thank you for letting me share this morning with you. And the thing about her and flowers, it's very hard to shake. After me, there came a panel discussion on nature, leading off with Orville Freeman. Orville announced that an azalea, pure white and very lovely, was being named for me, the Mrs. LBJ. Another one of those times when I wish I hadn't acquired a nickname, but had just been Claudia all my life. I've thought a lot about that nickname, Ladybird how it makes her seem so approachable, at least in that era, but also how it obscures how serious she was. I wonder if she ever felt it diminished her, especially as she grew into her ideas and the work she was trying to do became so much more substantial. Claudia, her actual name, certainly has more gravitas, and it might have felt like a better fit as she became a more powerful public figure. But like the thing with flowers, a feminized euphemism if ever there was one, Nicknames can become pigeonholes, and their implied identities are hard to escape. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Lady Bird's indictment of mammoth freeways isn't just a rhetorical flourish for a speech. In Washington, D.C., a bill to fund a new round of highways is making its way through Congress. The plan will do all kinds of damage to D.C. communities, mostly the Black neighborhoods of this segregated capital city. And Congress has given D.C.'s still new local government a kind of ultimatum. Start building freeways or lose the funding for a new public transportation system, the Metro. In their ambitious plans for the neighborhood of Anacostia, Lady Bird and landscape architect Larry Halperin had proposed rerouting part of that new freeway system in order to preserve a prime piece of public land called Kingman Island. They hoped to develop it as a vast park in the inner city. The project had stalled, but in the wake of Martin Luther King's assassination, there's renewed momentum for it. But if the freeway bill passes, the island will be more or less destroyed and their hopes for the park along with it, unless LBJ can be persuaded to veto it. 
Sharon Francis talked about how Lady Bird approached her lobbying effort with LBJ. She wanted to reassure me that that all the editorials and material I'd sent up to her really of opposition to the bill. She had conveyed to him and she had, while not trying to make the decision for him, had been very sympathetic to those people who were urging that he veto it. Lady Bird's not just sympathetic, as she told Sharon. She's working behind the scenes with cabinet members, like Stu Udall, who are most opposed to the legislation. But even if he's sympathetic too, Lyndon really doesn't want to veto a Democrat-led bill just as he's leaving office. LBJ signs it into law, and with it, he signs away any chance that his wife's signature legacy project will ever see the light of day. August 68 is convention month. The Republicans gather in Miami, where Richard Nixon is the favorite for the nomination. The Democrats will be in Chicago. Lyndon and Lady Bird head to the ranch. But with Bobby Kennedy gone, various factions in the party have started putting out feelers about drafting LBJ to the top of the ticket. As far as Lady Bird's concerned, Lyndon's decision is irrevocable. She's already started packing up her things, shipping them home. But as they head to Texas for the month, it's not entirely clear that LBJ thinks he's done. Friday, August 9th, I was up early, had a swim with Lyndon, about 20 laps. The day was going to be a busy day with almost as much air traffic as Dulles. There was a flurry of arrivals. We got the message that Senator Eastland's plane was circling and about to land. One of the many visitors to the LBJ ranch is Mississippi Senator James Eastland. Eastland's a Democrat, yet a hardened opponent of desegregation and civil rights. But he's a senior member of Congress, and he and the president have to work together. LBJ has invited him to the ranch because he needs something from Eastland, and vice versa. A brief detour here for context. Back in 1964, despite extensive news coverage and public outcry, Eastland told LBJ that he didn't believe three civil rights workers in Mississippi had actually gone missing. Senator? Yes. Thank you, sir. The president. Yes. Senator Eastland on 9-1. Jim, we got three kids missing down there. What can I do about it? Well, I don't know. I don't believe there's, I don't believe there's three missing. You got their parents down here. I believe it's for publicity, son. Their parents are here, and they've come down to see the attorney general, and they're going to be interviewed by the FBI. And After a six-week search, the FBI found the bodies of the three civil rights workers, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner, buried in an earthen dam on a farm in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Not a publicity stunt. Now, in August of 1968, as Eastland is arriving at the ranch, the president is meeting with his Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Robert Weaver. Weaver's the only black member of LBJ's cabinet. Instinctively, I thought that Senator Eastland and Secretary Weaver wouldn't be exactly a cozy little company. So perhaps I could be useful by meeting Senator Eastland and driving around the place while Lyndon conducted his business with the secretary. Senator Eastland has come to the ranch to do a little horse trading. Eastland is chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, the 
president has nominated his longtime personal lawyer, Abe Fortas, who's now an associate justice on the Supreme Court, as chief justice. LBJ needs the senator's support to get Fortas confirmed. But Eastland has another agenda. Senator Eastland was determined to talk politics. He said, you know your husband's going to be nominated, don't you? I said, no, sir, not at all. There's not going to be any movement of that sort. That is, not with any force behind it. And if he were, he wouldn't accept. Eastland is surprised at her conviction and her clout with the president. He seemed somehow taken aback, a little disbelieving, as though I had hoped it would happen that way, but relatively unshaken in his conviction. As a Democrat, Eastland is looking at the election pragmatically. Sure, he's got differences with LBJ, like civil rights, but the administration's poverty programs have played well in Mississippi. And anyway, there's no great alternative. As little as they see eye to eye, as much as lies between them, he would rather see Lyndon nominated than anybody now before the Democratic Party. But in terms of a last-minute draft in Chicago, another run for president for LBJ? No way. Finally, I drove back to the main house and with considerable relief saw Lyndon's convertible just going around the barn, conveying Secretary Weaver to the plane. And that other business, securing Eastland's vote for Abe Fortas? No dice. With one foot out the door, LBJ just can't rally that kind of support. And the Fortas Chief Justice nomination fails. Our regularly scheduled program will not be seen tonight so that ABC News can bring you color coverage of the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Good evening from the International Amphitheater in Chicago. Within 24 hours, the convention will begin. At this moment, it is the calm in the eye of the storm. Just outside the building is ringed with more police than I have ever seen in one place, and beyond them, there are federal troops. The convention in Chicago opens on Monday, August 26. Thousands of anti-war protesters descend on the city. Mayor Daley has deployed 12,000 police officers and, with LBJ's backing, 5,600 National Guardsmen and 5,000 Army Reserve troops. The cops have shoot-to-kill orders against anyone out after curfew. Chicago is not a police state, but the police haven't heard that yet. Now the guard is pushing the people back with rifles. There's some people down now. The rifle butts are flying now on the corner. I can see a young blonde-haired man, about 20 years old, blood streaming down his face. It's been like this for three straight nights, confrontations between youthful demonstrators and Chicago's police department. At times, officers use what seemed to be unnecessary and often brutal force to get their captives into paddy wagons. Another in a long list of incredible sights on the streets of Chicago this week. From afar, it seemed like a seething cauldron of emotions and hippies and yippies and police standing by. If I could have been there without being me, I would have liked very much to see what is looming up as one of the spectacles of our time. A 26-year-old Aretha Franklin opens the convention with a powerful rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner. The New York Times reported that, quote, Aretha Franklin sang what to many ears, notably those of a thoroughly rattled orchestra, was the first soul version of the Star-Spangled Banner. We're trying to get a better line. 
Back in Texas, Lyndon is still hemming and hawing. He calls Texas Governor John Connolly to have him sound out Southern state delegates. Was Eastland right? Would they draft LBJ? The answer is a definitive no. How relaxing it is to look at this from the distance of a non-competitor. There had been talk about going to the convention to make a sort of a valedictory speech to receive good wishes on our birthday. Lyndon's birthday, I mean. No decision. On his birthday, while Ladybird is planning a low-key party at daughter Lucy's house in Austin, LBJ is still working on a speech he might give that night at the convention. He's on the phone with Hubert Humphrey, Mayor Daley, members of Congress. No, no, I have many plans to go and rather doubt that I will. I don't know, uh, I might uh, change my mind, uh, but uh, I have many plans to go and I don't know. London's 60th birthday, Tuesday, August 27th, was probably as strange and dramatic and in a way sad birthday as any he'll ever have. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, President Johnson had dinner at daughter Lucy's house. He celebrated his 60th birthday, absent but not forgotten by his party, convened in Chicago. At Lucy's house, a small group of journalists sing to the president. Someone asks if he'll be going to Chicago. I have not decided yet, Lyndon says. It's almost six in the evening. And Lyndon sat on the sofa, and Lucy brought in his cake with one candle on it. We took Lynn on his lap, we cut his cake and gave Lynn a piece. We promptly began making a mess. It was all very low-key, which somehow, in a way, added to the sad atmosphere. Bird invites about 20 of their local friends to join them at the ranch to watch the convention on the three-console set, eating dinner off of TV trays in the living room. The decision had been made irrevocably on March 31st, but somehow there was a special saying goodbye this week to our whole political life. There's a candid set of black and white photos of the Johnsons in bed the next morning, passing the phone back and forth. Lyndon, Lady Bird, and their girls gathered around the TV set, just like the rest of the country, watching it all unfold. And so we go on through this strange year. The world is undergoing convulsions all around us. Our party, our country, the whole world. Our world is a racking year for Lyndon physically, and it must be mentally and spiritually. And sometimes I think the greatest courage in the world is to get up in the morning and go about the day's work. That is one of the things I like about him. He keeps on and on and on. Every inauguration has its special drama. I suppose the special drama of this one is the game that Destiny has played with Richard Nixon. Eight years ago, he was defeated for President of the United States, something few politicians recover from. And like the surprise ending of the story, he's back today, the winner to be sworn in as the 37th President of the United States. Former President Johnson is leaving the Capitol, to which he came as a young doorkeeper 38 years ago. He'll go to Andrews Air Force Base, where he has taken off uh, so many times before for Texas and his ranch, but this time, of course, it will be very different indeed. Monday, January 20th. 
He mounted the steps of Air Force One. Lyndon, carrying his faithful companion, Lynn, stopped at the top of the family and turned and waved in a conscious goodbye tableau. I looked over my shoulder, and there was a silver crescent of a new moon, bright and clear and full of promise. It reminded me of, rather preciously of one of the astronauts who said that he would look at the moon in years to come and remember with wonder that he was there. And both Lyndon and I will look back at the presidency with wonder that we were there. It's August 1969. Lady Bird and Lyndon head to San Clemente, California to visit Pat and Dick Nixon. The four of them fly up the Pacific coast to dedicate the Lady Bird Johnson Grove in Redwood National Park that Bird had pushed for and that LBJ signed into law in October 1968. Nixon, under intense public pressure, has little choice but to build on the Johnson's environmental agenda, passing a raft of legislation and establishing the Environmental Protection Agency. In April 1970, Americans celebrated their first Earth Day. Building public consciousness had always been Lady Bird's plan. As she said in her 80s, looking back, I never forgave Lyndon's boys for turning my environmental agenda into a beautification project. But I went ahead and talked about wildflowers so as not to scare anybody, because I knew if the people came to love wildflowers, they'd eventually care about the land that grew them. By the summer of 1970, protests in the streets and lawsuits in federal courts stopped construction of all the proposed new highways in Washington, D.C., including the one that would have destroyed Kingman Island. And in 2019, the D.C. government proposed half a billion dollars for a vast campus of arts and recreation along the Anacostia River, just like the one Larry Halperin and Lady Bird had tried to make happen in 1968. Who knows if it'll ever really materialize, but at least today, Kingman Island is a public nature preserve. And at the end of 1970, Lady Bird published a White House diary, a carefully edited version of the diary she kept during her time in the White House. This series includes entries that were in the book and many more that weren't. A White House diary made the New York Times bestseller list and stayed there for 13 weeks. Lyndon's memoir, published the next year, never made the list. Just a few short years later, on January 22, 1973, Lyndon Johnson suffered a massive heart attack at the LBJ ranch. He was flown to the hospital in San Antonio. Lady Bird was in Austin on business and arrived at the hospital just minutes after he died. He was 64 years old. Thousands of women gathered in Houston today as a symbolic torch marked the beginning of a national women's conference. For that, Sylvia Chase. The last steps in a 2,600-mile relay from Seneca Falls, New York, site of the first American Women's Rights Convention back in 1848. More than 2,000 runners have passed this torch all the way to Houston. At the 1977 National Women's Conference in Houston, Lady Bird is there with Coretta Scott King, Bella Abzug, and Betty Friedan, Barbara Jordan and Maya Angelou. They're on the stage in front of 20,000 women rallying behind the Equal Rights Amendment. 
the conference is captured in a special on PBS. And as Lady Bird takes the podium, we hear her connect with the women's movement in a way she never quite did during her time in the White House. I once thought the women's movement belonged more to my daughters than to me, but I have come to know that it belongs to women of all ages. Lady Bird spends the next 30 years championing all the same issues that defined her time in the White House, from environmentalism to public access to nature, to documenting the historical record of Lyndon Johnson's political career and of their presidency. Lady Bird Johnson died in 2007 at the age of 94. Thanks for listening to In Plain Sight, Lady Bird Johnson. In Plain Sight was written and executive produced by Adam Pincus and me, Julia Swig. It's based on the work I did for my book, Lady Bird Johnson, Hiding in Plain Sight. Executive producers for ABC are Victoria Thompson and Eric Johnson. Our producer is Ann Carkey. Ali Gallo is our associate producer. Susie Liu is ABC's archival producer. Associate producers for archival are Isabel Dorval and Dana Schaefer. This episode was edited by Adrian Lilly with additional editing by Vanessa Lowe and help from Lindsay Cradwell. It was mixed by Dean White. Our theme music is Crossbone Style by Cat Power. Original music is composed by Sam Retzer. Our music supervisor is Linda Cohen. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY. Special thanks to Kevin Pham at Best Case Studios. And thanks to Joshua Cohan, Liz Alessi, and Stacia Deshishku at ABC Audio, Mike Kelly and Beth Hoppy at ABC News Longform, and Ian Rosenberg and Kimberly Brown, who handled our legal and standards review. In Plain Sight is a co-production of Best Case Studios and ABC Audio. Some material was edited for clarity and time. Be sure to subscribe to the In Plain Sight podcast, and if you like what you heard, leave us a review.